What we're going to do over the next few weeks, uh, I should say next few months, is um, I want us to look at the, 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 the core um, truths, if you will, of Christianity. If we were in a seminary class, this would be Systematic Theology 101. Uh, what are the, the basics of what Christians believe? We've talked about what Baptists believe a good bit, um, but I want us to spend some time together looking at the Bible and finding out not only what are the core uh, truths, the core doctrines of Christianity, but why? Why have those uh, doctrines become so important to our faith? So that's where we're headed over the next few weeks. And so this evening, I want us to look at the fact as we begin the core beliefs, we have to start with the fact that Jesus is God. Look with me in Luke chapter 2. Now, as soon as I said Luke chapter 2, some of you have the, the mental bookmarks that we've talked about a number of times before. And as soon as you heard Luke chapter 2, you knew that it was going to talk about what? Jesus being born, Christmas time. Luke chapter 2 is that very famous passage uh, that we read every Christmas Eve and uh, usually uh, wind up preaching from that that text a couple of times during Advent in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, et cetera, et cetera. Usually when we read the story, we, we uh, read the story about the shepherds abiding, uh, keeping watch over their flock by night, and the angels came and all this amazing things, and then the shepherds said, well, hey, let's go tell everybody what we found out, and then the story ends. This, this evening I want to start where we usually stop in Luke 2. Look with me and we're going to begin at verse 25. There's a, there's a guy who plays a major role in declaring the identity of Jesus and unfortunately because the first half of the chapter is so beautiful and so powerful this poor little guy gets overlooked because we rarely go to the second half of this chapter. So let's, let's go there tonight, 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That phrase, consolation of Israel, is referring to the coming of the Messiah. Consolation is, um, we could oversimplify it and say consolation is to be consoled. It is to be, it's to, to make one feel better, to ease one's pain. Israel has been going through a great deal of pain uh, for many, many years, and they are longing for Messiah who will come and console them, the consolation of Israel. And so Simeon is longing for and looking for the, uh, the, the coming of Messiah. And so he says he's waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. I love that phrase there, the Lord's 
Christ. The promise was made to Simeon, you, uh, you're not going to die until you get a chance to see this one that, uh, that is referred to here as the Lord's Christ. Uh, what a great promise. You know, there had been for hundreds of years now, uh, they've been longing for Messiah, looking for him. And now to get that word, hey, Simeon, you're going to get to see him before you die. And he is the Lord's Christ. The Lord, in this case, refers to Yahweh, Jehovah, God Almighty. And Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Those words are exactly the same. So when you say Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus is Messiah. And so here is the promise. Before you die, you will see Yahweh's Messiah. In verse 27, and he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and he blessed God. And he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. I wanted you to hear that, that song. I wanted you to... to to see the story of Simeon again because he gets, he gets neglected too often. And what an awesome story. Simeon, you're going to see Yahweh's Messiah before you die. And sure enough, when they bring Jesus in for the, the rituals in the temple, here he is and he holds the baby. He says, I've seen your salvation he defines that salvation as light to the Gentiles. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And he defines it as glory to your people, Israel. In other words, this baby is going to bring salvation to Jews and Gentiles alike. Only God can do that. And so we are, we are at the very beginning introduced to Jesus in a way that lets us know that he is divine, that he's God. From the time that Gabriel told Mary that she was going to have a divine child, by that I mean she's going to have a child in a divine way. From that moment until this We've been, we've been looking forward to his coming. We've been excited about who he's going to be. We celebrate him, his birth in, Luke, in the first part of Luke 2. And in the last half, we get a, a clear definition that he is going to be the one who is God on earth. Through the Gospels, uh, Jesus claims to be God in a number of different ways, and he performs works that only God could do. Those are the two ways that we know that, that uh, uh, right off the bat, we know that he's God in the, in the Gospels because he says he is, and because he does stuff that only God could do. 
If we look at Matthew 22 real quick, there's one very good example of that. In Matthew 22, beginning at verse 43, Matthew 22 and 43, the Pharisees had gathered together and uh, they were trying to trick Jesus again. They said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Jesus is trying to teach them. And so they, he says to these Pharisees, Pharisees, you tell me, based on all you know about Old Testament scripture, who is the Messiah's ancestors? Who, who is the Messiah going to come from? And they answered, the son of David. And then look at 43. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? If Messiah is going to be David's son, how can David refer to his own son as Lord? And then he shows us where he does that very thing. For us, it's recorded in verse 44. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. It's quoting from the Psalms. I think it's Psalm 110. And uh, <clears throat> Jesus is pointing out, if he's going to be David's son, how could David refer to him as Lord? Jesus is laying the groundwork of saying, I am David's son, son of David, in humanity, in our family tree. But David knew that there was something more to me than just the family tree. He knows that I also am Lord. And in this conversation, then Jesus declares himself as God. And we'll, uh, I want to show you something in Mark. I've got the, uh, the Gospels in order here on purpose, so it'll be easy as possible to find. You're in Mark. Go to, I mean, you're in Matthew. Go to Mark chapter 2. Mark 2 and 7. Jesus is talking in this uh, in a house, and there are people everywhere, and uh, it's one of those situations where you can you can hardly move, and there are some friends who have a you know one of their buddies is paralyzed, and they can't get into the the house to bring the the paralyzed guy to Jesus, and so they get really smart. They say, "Well, we'll just dig a hole in the roof." Now. You know, their roofs were nothing like ours. I mean, it would, it, would, it would be very hard to dig a hole in our roofs. And once it did, the whole house would be in trouble until you've all that stuff. This was completely different. This was much easier. It was possibly clay, but even more likely, it was just layers of, of branches and leaves and things. And so they, were, they made a hole. And they lower the guy right in front of Jesus. And Jesus 
amazes me in that he doesn't mind the interruption. That's what always stands out to me in the story. Here is Jesus preaching, and he got a full house. And I have a feeling some of those people were even willing to say amen once in a while. <laughs> and they, they were having church, and there was an interruption. I, I think with an interruption like that, I might not handle that as well as Jesus. But Jesus recognized the importance of ministry and he realized that that ministry opportunity was more important than what he was on his agenda for the time. And so he allowed the interruption and he healed the man. But not only did he heal the man, he said something very interesting to him. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. And when he said that, some of the Pharisees that were standing around started questioning. It's interesting, too, that the Bible says in verse 6 that they questioned in their hearts. They didn't say it out loud. They questioned in their hearts. But since he is God, he knew what was going on in their hearts. And so he answers them in verse 7. Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say roll up your, your, your what is it, your pad? Uh, roll up your bed and walk. Which one's easier? Oh, well, it's a whole lot easier to, uh, a whole lot easier to say you just roll up your bed, right? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Watch this, he said. Take up your bed and go home. It's, it's a whole lot easier. I was, I was trying to get a reaction a while ago. It's a whole lot easier to say, ah, you're forgiven. Because who can prove it one way or another? Right? You're forgiven. Who knows? The hard thing would be, hey, paralyzed dude that everybody always sees paralyzed all the time, get up and walk. That's going to be the tough one. So you know that I have power to say the first thing. I'm going to say the second thing. Dude, get up and walk. And he gets up and walks. Demonstrating he has the power to say the first thing, which is what? Your sins are forgiven. Who can forgive sin? Only God. Well, Jesus is verifying. He is stating by his actions that he is indeed God. We'll keep going to Luke chapter 7. And a very, very similar situation. This is the, the sinful woman. Uh, and in a, in, in a very similar way, uh, she demonstrates her 
repentance and her love of him. You know, she's crying on his feet, wiping his feet with, with her hair and uh, kissing his feet and all these things. And, um, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven in verse 48. In verse 49, then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Who is, that's the question, who is this that can forgive sins? Well, it's a rhetorical question whether they meant it to be or not because the answer is God. God is the only one who forgives sin. Therefore, if Jesus is doing it, he is saying to the world, I am God. And then um, let, me, uh, let me make sure that I've got this number right before you turn to. Yeah, we don't need to turn to it. Back in chapter 6, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees jumped on him and he said, hey, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Well, if he's Lord over the holy day, that means he's God. So, so throughout the Gospels, Jesus claims to be God, and he performs works that only God can do. So we've gone through the first three Gospels. Now I want to spend most of our evening in the Gospel of John. If you'll look with me at John chapter 1, verse 1, that's where we'll start. Exactly. Might as well start in the beginning. Very good place to start. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word what? Was God. You say, well, that's fine, but I don't understand. I don't know who the Word is or what the Word is. You can't, this verse doesn't say Jesus. It says the Word. Okay. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word is the one who became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus. And so we have without, uh, without question that Jesus is the word who was with God in the beginning and what is God? So, spending, the re spending most of the rest of our time in John, let's kind of summarize some of the things that we've already said. We know that Jesus was God because he said he was God. Look at uh, chapter 8 here in the Gospel of John. Chapter 8 and 48. 8 and 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Notice he calls him father. He did that throughout the Gospels. Verse 50, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, 
and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So he just here says, you know the right God. You've, you've called him. He is our God. That God glorifies me because I'm his son. But you have not really known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. <laughs> but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. You, ba you base your whole religion on Abraham. Abraham was looking forward to me. So am I greater than Abraham? <laughs> yeah. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And how have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... Before Abraham was, past tense, I am. Present tense, because he always is. There has never been any time in which he was not. And he was before time. Therefore, he is and always has been and always will be in the present Time has no construct, no constraints. There's a word there. Has no constraints on the Almighty, on the Holy One, on Jesus, on God. In the beginning was, meaning Jesus never was created. He was. When the beginning occurred, he already was. He always has been. I am. But not only does it speak to his his eternal nature, not only does it speak to um, his everlasting being, but he also takes the name Yahweh for himself, doesn't he? When Moses sees the, the fiery, uh, the, the bush, right? And uh, he goes over to see what's going on in the bush. He hears the voice. The voice says, go set my people free. Moses says, I can't do that. I, I don't know who will I say sent me. And God says, I am. No one had ever known the name of this great God until he revealed his name to Moses. I am is his name. That word is the verb to be. It is the word that is translated or transliterated actually into Yahweh. When we call him Yahweh or we use the the, the Latin version of that, Jehovah, we're calling his name, I am. So Jesus says, uh, you want to compare me to Abraham? Abraham was, I am. 
meaning he is eternal, but also meaning he is Yahweh. In uh, chapter 14, Oh, they couldn't stand that because for a lot of reasons. One, it, it messed up their current view of reality. And none of us likes it when somebody shakes up our reality. Um, but also they, they couldn't stand that because for that to be true means that people really should start following Jesus, which means they're no longer following these dudes. And none of us likes to give up power. Chapter 14, verse 8. This is, a, this is a, a, a fun conversation. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus, you, 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 I, I know you're the Son of God. If you just show us the Father... That's all we need, man. We, we'd be good to go forever from now on if you just show us the Father. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Show us the Father was the question. The answer is, don't you know me? See, there's no, there's no real distinction. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. If you can't believe what I'm saying, at least believe what you're seeing. Only God could do the stuff I'm doing. So Jesus says that he is God. That, uh, that John 14 is uh, hopefully another one of those mental bookmarks for you. John 14 through 17 is what we call the upper room experience. All those chapters, that's where he's spending the last night with his disciples. He is teaching them the most important things that they need to know when he's gone. And it is in that, in that upper room experience that he says to them very clearly, you need to understand who I am. I and the Father are one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's right there a few verses earlier. No one comes to the Father but by me. Why? Because he and I are one. You can't reject Jesus and get to God. It doesn't work that way. Because Muhammad and God are not one. Buddha and God are not one. Jesus and God, the Father. Jesus is God the Son. There is God the Father, and there is God the Holy Spirit. They are one. You can't get to the Father if you reject the Son. And so he, he says, we are one. And just, and just a few chapters later, that same evening, he prays what we usually call the high priestly prayer in John 17. That chapter, John 17, is a prayer that Jesus prays on behalf of all believers. 
He takes on his role as the high priest and he prays for all believers. And it is in that chapter at verse 5 that he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Who was before the world? Only God. Only God. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with that glory that I used to have before I put on humanity that we had before the world existed. We move forward a little bit to chapter 20 at verse 28 and 29. Chapter 20. At 28 and 29, Jesus has already died on the cross. He's already come back to life. The disciples are gathered in the upper room again, we assume. And Thomas is with them, and he says, yeah, but I, I'm not going to believe it. It's, it's too hard to believe Jesus is back. It's too hard to believe he came back to life. I won't believe it until I can see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of those nails and place my hand into his side. If I can't do those things, I'll never believe. You have to show it to me. I have to see it to believe it. Yeah. And Jesus appears. Hey, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Verse 28, Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. If Thomas had gotten that wrong, Jesus would have corrected him immediately because his purpose in coming was to bring glory to the Father. If Thomas was wrong in that statement, Jesus would have corrected it. Instead, verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He didn't correct Thomas because what Thomas had said was correct. It was true. My Lord, my God. You see, Jesus said he was God. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis organized these thoughts in such a powerful way. Um, you've heard at least part of this quote before, I imagine, um, but nobody says it as well as he does. So let me read to you from Mere Christianity, just this one paragraph. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
Have you ever heard anybody say that? I don't know if I've ever heard anybody say that specifically directly, but I think a lot of people do feel that and think that in the world. They just haven't said it to me, that Jesus was a good man. He was a good teacher. But that's about all there is. C.S. Lewis says, you can't think that way, and here he's going to tell us why. That is the one thing we must not say, that Jesus was just a good man and a good teacher. We must not say that. Why? A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. To us, He did not intend to. C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. The idea is, is really pretty simple. Since Jesus said he was God, we only have three options. Either he's God or he's lying to us. If he's a liar, he is not a good moral teacher. So you can't say that. Or he's not God and he's not lying. He's just crazy. He thinks he's God, but he's not. So your options are, is he a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord? Those are the only options. We know that Jesus is God because he said he was God. But we also know that he was God because he died, and like no other human ever, he came back to life. Now you say, wait a minute, Lazarus came back to life. Jesus died, and like no other human ever, he came back to life. Lazarus came back to life, but not at all like Jesus did. For one thing, Jesus came back to life on his own power. Lazarus had to have someone do something for him in order for that to happen. Secondly, Lazarus came back to life, and then he walked on the earth for a while, and then he died. His was more like a resuscitation than it was a resurrection. Jesus came back to life. He walked on the earth for a while, and then he ascended, never dying. Therefore, his promise to those who believe in him is that we can experience that new creation in him and never die like he never died. One of the things, one of the ways that we know he is God is that he died and rose again. Now make no mistake, he did indeed die. I know that 
throughout history, there have been a lot of people who have tried to come up with all kinds of weird theories. You know, he, he really just fainted or, or they faked it and they lied and all this stuff. There's no reason there. We have no valid reason to come up with uh, those stories uh, unless our only goal is to deny Scripture. Because in all four Gospels, all four, we meet Joseph of Arimathea who gave his tomb. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were responsible together. They were partners in taking Jesus from the cross and burying him. And all four Gospels record that Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus. We know he was dead. Not only did that, but we, we, there are a lot of other reasons we know he was dead, not the least of which is when they put the spear in his side. You know why they did that? It was, it was not to further his, his torture or his punishment. He'd been through enough of that. The spear in the side was to see how the blood flowed. And if it flowed in one color and thickness, then he was, that meant that the blood was still churning inside. It was still pumping but if it, blowed, if it flowed in a way that they said it looked like it had water, then they knew he was dead. And sure enough, he was dead. That's why they finally took him down from the cross. As a matter of fact, they were about to, to break his legs so that he could no longer push up on that nail and get a breath and exhale. If they break his legs, he can't push up anymore, and so he finally suffocates. But before they could break his legs, they realized he was dead. And so they didn't break his legs, and uh, that fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy that said none of his bones would be broken. He was dead. They put him in a grave. On the third day after that, the ladies showed up, and the grave was empty. He's, he wasn't there. His body wasn't there. He died a real death. He was completely human, and he completely died. But he came back to life because he is God. God created life and has power over death. Only God could do those things. Look with me real quick in Mark 15. Mark 15 at 44. Just to, just to verify the historical account, Mark 15 at 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. The centurion verified the death. Pilate authenticated the death and gave the body to Joseph. And then uh, just a few pages to the left, Mark, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 28. Matthew 28 and verse 6.
Matthew 28 and 6. The women show up at the tomb, and there's an angel there. And the angel says, don't be afraid. I know that you came to find Jesus who was crucified. In verse 6, he is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he laid. He really died. He really came back to life. Only God could do that. And that takes us to a third reason that we know Jesus is God. Because Jesus fulfilled his promise. Now, if we had more time to spend some time at the crucifixion, we could look at how he fulfilled his purpose as well. I don't know if you noticed that, that uh, Pilate said, I can't believe he's already dead. You know, Jesus, uh, Jesus died sooner than many people would have, and you wonder why. Well, it wasn't because he was weak. It was because he completed his purpose. It is finished, he said. He did what he came to do. Therefore, he commended his own spirit into the hands of the Father, and he died. But not only did he fulfill his purpose, he fulfilled his promise. And uh, in Luke 24, and we'll, and we'll wrap it up here pretty quick. In Luke 24, Luke 24, verses 6 and 7. Again, the reference to the crucifixion, but I want you to see something important. In Luke 24, verses 6 and 7. Angel says, He is not here, He is risen. Remember how He told you while He was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man and be crucified and on the third day rise. You see, we know He's God because He died and rose again. But not only that, He told them before it happened that He was going to be crucified and that He would come back and that He'd be found risen, found alive, on the third day. He told them ahead of time. Only God could do that. So we start, the core Christianity has to begin with who is Jesus. We have to begin with the reality that Jesus is God. And that gets a little confusing for us, doesn't it? How one man can be divine and human, God and man. And it is so confusing that through church history, there have been all kinds of heresies, all kinds of groups that have formed and completely misunderstood and misrepresented how he can be man and God. There's a union of two natures in him. And we have to figure out a way to verbalize that correctly. In the past, there were groups who said that he, he really did not even have a physical body, that that was just kind of an image, that he really was only divine. And the physical body was just kind of an image that he projected yeah 
On the other hand, at the same time, there was a group who said he was completely human and not really divine. Not really God. Another group said that in his, in his divinity, he was eternal and he was God. When it was time for him to become man, that divinity swallowed up the humanity. And so really the humanity goes away and you just have God. There have been a lot of confusing ways to try to understand him because we try to understand him in our own minds. And remember, we are to lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways. When we try to force him into our human box, it doesn't work. But if we take him at his word, we understand he was divine. He was human. Galatians 4.4 says that he was born of a virgin, born under the law. Born of a virgin means he's got to be divine, but he was born under the law and men keep keep laws. He was man and God. The Mormons speak of him as the, the first spirit child of God, meaning that God had Jesus as the first spirit child, and then he's had other spirit child's children along the way. Scripture says he is the only begotten. Jehovah's Witness uh, teach that Jesus was the first of the created beings. But again, that doesn't match Scripture that says he was in the beginning. Jesus was not created. He has always been. In Revelation, it says that he was and is and is to come. He is eternal in nature. And so you have to ask yourself, who is Jesus? In Mark chapter 8, we won't take time to look at it, but in Mark chapter 8, Jesus says to the disciples, who do people say I am? Ah, Some say Elijah. Some say a prophet. All right, that's cool. Who do you say I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, God revealed that to you. You got it right, Peter. Matter of fact, on that confession, on that truth, that I am the Messiah and the Son of God, on that truth, I'm going to build my whole church. And so I want to encourage you with the the text in John that we looked at quickly. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. When Jesus looks at you and says, who do you say I am? Can you answer with Thomas's answer? You're my Lord. You're my God.